passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. This morning is officially the last message in the Gospel of Mark. I know you think it was a long time in coming. This is the 64th message in the Gospel. And for those of you who don't like long series, I want to make you actually feel a little better. I was with Doug Corlew, who's a friend of mine. He's the Evangelical Free Church pastor um, in Alta, Iowa. It's Summit Church, and he's been teaching through the Gospel of Luke. And I said, hey, Doug, how far are you in the Gospel? How many messages have you preached? He said to me, I'm on my 95th message, and I'm not close to the end yet. So for the, be thankful we chose a shorter Gospel. We're on 64, which actually turns out to be a good thing. While this has been a long series, it's really been a good series. I hope you felt that. I have loved going through this gospel, studying miracles after miracles, Jesus feeding people who are hungry, healing people who are sick, raising people from the dead, walking in the shoes of Jesus for what is a little bit over a year has been an incredible blessing to me, and I hope it has been an incredible blessing to you as well. And here as we come to the end of the gospel, we have what is really the most important part of Jesus' life. We've been studying the crucifixion, death, burial, and now today, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those are not just the most important events in the life of Jesus. Those are the most important events in the history of the entire world world. And of those four events, the one that is the most significant of all is the resurrection that we are studying. Because the resurrection, my friends, changes everything. It validates the entire life of Christ and stamps victory over top of it. Now while this morning we will be spending most of our time looking at the um, history of the resurrection and how it uh, took place out of the Gospel of Mark, I thought that we would actually start in a different place. We'd actually start with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 because it's so important not just to understand the history of how the resurrection took place, but we also need to understand the significance of what the resurrection means, not just for Jesus, but for you and me today and how it changes our life. So before we go to Mark, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul describes the significance of the resurrection for us. If you're following along in your outlines, it's on the very top. He says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And he says here, For I delivered to you as of first importance, this is the number one most important thing you have to know, what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, 
he appeared also to me. He says, what I want you to understand, what is of first importance, the first thing you must know, the basic foundational truth is the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he spends most of his time after that explaining the significance and the authenticity of one of those, which is the resurrection. And that Jesus didn't just appear to one person alive. He appeared to many, many people alive. He didn't just appear to one person at a time alive. He appeared to groups of people. One time to a group as large as 500 people that he was alive. And Paul says this is the most important truth we have to know. And then he says, by the way, here's what happens if it isn't true. In verses 13 through 14. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And then he goes to verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If Jesus Christ did not literally rise from the dead, as we are studying this morning, he tells us this. All of our Christian faith is absolutely useless. There is no reason you should be here on, the sun, on this Sunday morning at all. If Jesus didn't rise, you will not rise. When you die, your body will turn to mulch. You will be forgotten. There is no hope for anyone after death if Jesus did not rise. And if Jesus did not rise, worst of all is we are still in our sins. There's been no payment for our sins. We will spend eternity suffering for our sins, facing the just wrath of God, if Jesus did not rise. But then Paul continues, but guess what? The good news is he did rise from the dead. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, for our by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. The good news is that it isn't just true that Jesus rose from the dead, but absorb this. He was only the first fruits. You and I will also rise from the dead just like Jesus. Our bodies may be one day buried in the ground. Our bodies may turn to dirt and push up posies. But when Jesus returns and he says our name, our dead bodies, decayed bodies will recompose and will come back to life. And our bodies will be just like Jesus' resurrection body. A body that will last forever. A body that will never get sick. That can, will never be touched by COVID and it doesn't need a vaccine. Jesus' resurrection body is the prototype for our resurrection body. Jesus' resurrection means through our faith in him, we too will have a resurrection as well. And it's not just that. Through our faith in him, our sins are completely forgiven. So when we're absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. Through our faith in him, he gives us a new heart, a new spirit, that instead of rebelling against God, is deeply in love with God. He makes us into new creations. 
it's not just the end game of the resurrection, but we have the current game of the resurrection as well. This is why the resurrection is such a big deal. Because it's not just that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, but he rose from the dead, and through his incredible grace and faith in him, we will rise as well. Amen? This is why we study this this morning. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 16. We are going to be studying the first eight verses. I would ask you to stand out of reverence for the Word of God. And please, with your eyes, follow along in your copy of the Word of God, whether it's a paper Bible or electronic Bible, I don't care. Here we go, the final verses in Mark. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, well, who will roll, will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that ends the reading of the word of God. You can be seated. A uh, couple introductory notes before we start to study this text. Uh, the way we're going to go through these verses is I'm going to actually sort of create a harmony of the Gospels. As you know, the Gospel of Mark is by far the shortest of the Gospels, and he gives us the briefest account of the resurrection of Christ. And I think it's very helpful for us to be able to take information from the other Gospel writers, sort of weave them in so you know what happened when, and you have a more comprehensive picture. So that is what we are going to be doing this morning. The other thing I want you to know before we start is uh, we need to address this, what we would call, abrupt ending of Mark's Gospel. It just sort of stops on verse 8, and there, there it goes. Like, there's nothing else there. Uh, the reason Mark did it that way, incidentally, is he was intentionally creating what's called a literary cliffhanger. You would finish the gospel and go, well, what happened from there? And what would people do when they have a big question? What? Somebody said it. Seek out, yeah. They go to talk to their friends and say, well, what happened with Jesus? And there's the lead-in. But since Mark intentionally used this abrupt cliffhanger, which is a literary technique that he it was very conscious when he did it, the problem is that it leaves us with that question, like what happened next? And then you'll see in your Bible, there is actually verses 9 through 20. 
And some of your Bibles should have a little section on it that says the earliest manuscripts do not contain these verses. What's the story on these? Let me give you a brief explanation. Uh, as far as we can tell, it was a copyist who was hand-copying the Bible. Somewhere in the second century, he was frustrated by Mark's abrupt ending, so he sort of pasted together a little additional ending. Uh, number one, there is almost no Bible scholars who believe this was originally part of Mark's gospel. You know, the other thing you need to know is that the, the reason that it is in your Bible with this footnote on it is because since it was such an early yet wrong edition, many Bibles is down through history. I shouldn't say many. I said say some Bibles continued to copy these extra verses in them. In fact, uh, when you come into some of the early English Bibles, they threw them in. For instance, if you go to the King James, you will see that verses 9 through 20 are included with absolutely no footnote. Now, I'm going to tell you that they are not originally what Mark wrote. Grammatically, through the Greek, it's very clear. But the writers of the ESV, they said, we better at least address this issue. So when you open your Bible, you don't go, why did I get shortchanged on my English version? Because a bunch of verses are missing that were in the King James. So that's why they give you the explanation. While I'm not going to do this this morning, uh, we're going to go, by the way, for Christmas. We're going to do a Christmas series in the book of Romans. I'll tell you about more at the end of the service. After that, before we go to start 2 Timothy in January, I'm going to take one week and I'm going to do an explanation of these extra verses from 9 through 20. It's going to be a very different sermon. It's going to be like watching the History Channel because I'm going to take you back through history and explain where these verses came from, how we know they're not really part of our Bible, where did they get copied, how did they get added into the King James, and why are they not in our Bible? The reason I'm doing that is when I'm all done, you will have great confidence that the other verses in Mark are God's Word. And you also know why these extra verses aren't God's Word. And so it'll end up being a very exciting message. But that, my friends, is for after Christmas. Let's stick with verses 1 through 8 right now. So, we're going to build this uh, sermon out under three headings. What are Mark's evidences of the resurrection? The first one he gives us is this. The empty tomb is evidence of the resurrection. He says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Begins with saying, when the Sabbath was passed. Just so you know, many of you already know this, but it's worth repeating. The Sabbath for the Jews was Saturday. It was not Sunday. The other thing to remember is the Jews did not end their days at midnight like we do. Do you know when they ended their days? Sundown, sunset, right. So, this, when the Sabbath is passed is Sunday for us, and their Sunday for them would begin as soon as the sun went down. What is about ready to transpire is actually 11 to 12 hours into the Sunday day, even though the sun has not yet risen on what we are about to read. Now, we read about um, three women. 
these women, uh, remember they are bringing spices. We learned last week the Jews did not embalm bodies. What they did is they took and they wrapped them in strips of linen. They put spices around them and they let those bodies decay in rock tombs. We've seen that Joseph and Nicodemus have already brought 75 pounds of spices to wrap around Jesus. But these women who saw where they laid Jesus, they love Jesus. They are not going to be, uh, should we call it, outdone by these two men. So they are going to actually go and um, prepare spices for Jesus, that they want to put additional spices on Jesus' body. We met these women actually uh, a little bit earlier in, verse, in chapter 15. These women, it told us in chapter 15, have been following Jesus for over two plus years. They began following him in Galilee. And the difference between these women and the apostles is that they are the courageous ones. The apostles were the cowardly ones. Remember when Jesus was being crucified on the cross, except for the apostle John, where were the other apostles? Hiding. They had ran away. But these women, where were they? These women, and by the way, Luke tells us there was other women involved. They were there at the cross. They were there all the way to the end. We also know that when Joseph and Nicodemus took down the body of Jesus and brought it to Joseph's tomb and they prepared the body and put the body in the tomb, at least two of these women followed and actually watched Jesus' body be put in Joseph's tomb. And here they are continuing to be faithful, going back to bring spices on Jesus' body early, early Sunday morning. Now, Mark seems to say that uh, they prepared these spices on Sunday morning. Uh, Luke seems to tell us they prepared these spices actually before the Sabbath on Friday. Luke says this, The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. That's what we told you. They were there. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commands. Mark seems to tell us they bought spices on Sabbath morning. Uh, Luke seems to tell us they began preparing the spices on Friday night. Which one is right? How about both? Why can't they do both? Then it says this. Very early on the first day of the week. Now when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Mark tells us that what's about ready to transpire took place when the sun had risen. But if you look at the other gospel writers, they have a slightly different story. At least one of them does. Luke says what this takes place at early dawn. Sun is risen. Matthew says it takes place while it began to dawn, as the sun was rising. But John says this. The story of these women took place while it was still dark. Well, John is a little different. And... It's not identical in time. It's close in time. Should we just ignore that? Or is there some interesting things we need to notice because of that? 
this slight chronological difference is very helpful to help us understand how things transpired on the resurrection morning. Look what John says. Now it was the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Of these women, one of them, Mary Magdalene, came to the tomb earlier than the others. She came while it was still dark. She arrived before first light. What had happened? We know from the Gospel of Matthew that Mary Magdalene apparently left with the other woman while it, women while it was still dark. But here's my guess on what happened. I think Mary was a track star. I really do. Because I think what she did is she ran ahead of the other women, arrived at the tomb early while it was still dark. And John tells us what happened when Mary arrived at the tomb before the other women get there and it was still dark. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark before the other women and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So here goes the track star part. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Mary arrives. It's still dark, but there's enough light just to see that the stone has been rolled away. What does she do? She runs. Runs to tell Peter and what is John. And what is she going to tell them? You guys got it. They, somebody stole the body. Grave robbers stole the body. At this point, her message is not, Jesus is risen. She sees the stone rolled back, and she thinks, man, somebody took the body. Why would they take the body? He was buried in a rich man's tomb. And what do you typically bury a rich man with? Bling. So she thinks somebody came to steal the bling. And when she ran, by the way, I believe she ran in a different direction from where she came from because she does not cross path with the other women who are still on their way to the tomb who are carrying all the spices. Mary, she didn't even bother caring. She just ran. And it says this. Back to the other women. And they were saying to one another, well, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? Uh, they realized that, you know, we prepared the spices, but we didn't figure out how we're going to get enough guys here to roll away this stone. Historians tell us that the stones rolled in front of these kind of tombs were four to six feet in diameter. And you guys who work concrete, you know how much big, how heavy pieces of concrete are. Imagine a four to six foot piece of concrete slab. That's thousands of pounds. These women are not going to have a chance to do anything about this. So they're like, oh man, that's one thing we forgot. And it continues. They arrive at the tomb and it says this. 
And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. And it was very large. What do you think their immediate conclusion is? That Jesus is risen? What are they thinking? Let's go ahead and say it. Robbers. Ah, same conclusion as Mary Magdalene. Oh no, somebody stole the body. Even though Jesus has told them many times that I will rise on the third day, they can't get it through their head that somebody would actually rise from the dead. It doesn't take place any other, any other time. So, let me pause at this point, by the way. The story of the women, we've already seen Mary Magdalene's come early and run away. The other women have just arrived. See the stone is rolled. Here's what I want to give you another story of. The backstory. Because there was a lot that happened on the tomb on Saturday. Did you realize that? Saturday was a very busy day. The women would have known nothing about it. The Saturday was the Sabbath. They were forced to stay home, stay away from the tomb. They didn't have any idea what happened on Saturday. And here's what happens on Saturday. Matthew tells us. And it laid in its and laid it in his own new tomb, which had been cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. So they obviously know exactly where Jesus is buried. The next day, which is what at this point? He was buried on Friday? Saturday, the Sabbath. That is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, Oh, he's risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So the chief priests go to Pilate, say, Hey, we can have a fake resurrection taking place. Disciples stealing the body. We need some reinforcements. Pilate says, Take these Roman soldiers. Make this tomb as secure as possible. I guarantee you it's the only tomb in the entire graveyard that has Roman soldiers guarding it. And it's not just a few Roman soldiers. It's a lot of Roman soldiers. It's just not minimal security. It's maximum security. As secure as possible. The seal of Rome put on the door. Nobody can break that. These guards will be guarding this tomb with their life because according to Roman law, if they failed as guards, they would lose their life. So they're taking this extremely, extremely seriously. The women, by the way, have no idea about this. If they did, they knew that the tomb was sealed and guarded by Romans and nobody could go in, would they have bothered to make and bring the spices? Absolutely not. They have no idea this is taking place. And now Matthew tells us about something else that happened that resurrection morning. It happened before the women arrived, when it first dawned. 
It happened before Mary Magdalene arrived, while it was still dark. We're talking about maybe 4 o'clock in the morning. Here's what happened. It's regarding the soldiers. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. This is impressive. This four to six foot wide massive stone that it takes multiple men to move. An angel comes down from heaven, earthquakes the place, and single-handedly pushes the thing aside, hops up on top, and sits on it. Hi, guys. So much for trained Roman soldiers who are filled with power, strength, and courage. They don't do too well. It says, his appearance, describing this angel, was like lightning, and his clothing, white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Which means they started shaking like a junior high girl going on stage for the first time. And then they became like dead men, which means they do what? Who said it? They fainted. They passed out because of fear. So much for hardened, trained, spear-carrying Roman soldiers. They do not do well in front of an angel. Now at some point, they wake up. They get their consciousness back. They say, did you see what happened? Did you see that angel? They see the stone road aside. They see the body of Jesus gone. And you think they go back to guard duty? Do you know? Proud and strong. Thank you, Cooper. Absolutely not. They run for fear of their life, completely like cowards. Where do they run? They run to the chief priests. Tell the chief priests the story of what happened. The chief priests were trying to prevent a fake resurrection. <laughs> now they've got a real problem. Because instead of a fake resurrection, what do they have? A real resurrection on their hands. It's about time to go. Maybe, um, maybe we should reconsider our plan. Um, I think we're doing something a little wrong at this point. Do they do that? Absolutely not. Let's figure if we can have the spin. Let's figure a lie. What are we going to tell the public? And so they use money, like they've been doing all along. If you've been following, they use this to try and uh, bribe people, like bribing Judas. Hey, we'll bribe you as soldiers. Just say the disciples stole the body. When it comes to Pilate, we'll bribe him as well, and we'll keep you out of trouble. And then Matthew, in his account, says, that, by the way, that lie is still circulating 25 years later when he writes his gospel. So the first thing we've seen, the first evidence for the resurrection is the empty tomb. Nobody could produce a body. The soldiers ran in fear. It's evidence of the resurrection. The next part is the angels. The angels are evidence of the resurrection. And entering the tomb, this is back to the, the women, by the way, the second group of women. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, for they, and they were alarmed. Interestingly, I'll tell you this. I don't want to get into the Greeks. I know some of you aren't 
happy with the Greek, but I'll just tell you the word alarmed means they were completely and totally freaked out. Let me explain to you why. When you look at the other gospel writers, you're going to get different accounts of how these things happened, which incidentally is good because it tells us that these gospel writers didn't get together and just copy each other. They independently wrote their stories. But some of the gospel writers will talk about this being a man. Other gospel writers will talk about this being an angel. Some gospel writers talk about one angel or man in the tomb. Other gospel writers talk about two angels or men in the tomb. What's the right answer? What really happened? Let me answer those for you. Let's go to what Luke says about this. Luke says, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Luke identifies this as two instead of one. And they look like men, but they have dazzling apparel. Uh, the word dazzling in Greek means something that is bright like lightning and is flashing like lightning. So you can, you can, they look like human beings, but they've got some really major flashing and brightness to them. Human strobe lights is what they're like. So you can see uh, these are not just ordinary human beings. These are angelic human beings. John, the Gospel of John, by the way, also says there were two instead of one. John just comes right out and says, by the way, these are angels, not men. Because angels look like men, but they are not men. So that's what's going on with that. John also says one of them was sitting at Jesus's, where Jesus' head was, and the other was sitting where Jesus' feet were. Matthew comes along, and he says, he talks about one angel, but he says that these, this one angel is the one who talked to the women. Now, how do we put this together? One or two angels. We know only one of those two angels interacted and talked to the women. In Greek writing, they did not necessarily feel the, um, the need to be comprehensive in recording all of the people that were involved in a scene. They recorded the key and important people that were involved in a scene. And we've seen this earlier in Mark's Gospel. Remember when Jesus was, went on the boat, crossed the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and there was the Gadarene demoniac who came down to greet him? Mark talks about one at that time. You go to the Gospel of Matthew, he tells us how many demon-possessed men were there. Two. But Mark only gives us the story of one because that was the one that was significant in the story. That was the one who shared the Gospel message on that side of the lake to pre-evangelize it. There's only one angel of the two that does the talking. So Mark focuses in on the one angel that does the talking. It doesn't mean there was not a second angel there. He just identifies the one who actually did the speaking. So we have two angels that look like men. One of them does the talking, and Mark focuses in on that one. How do the women respond? 
It says they are amazed. They are dumbfounded. They are terrified. Which is actually far better than the Roman soldiers. They passed out. At least these women maintain consciousness in the presence of this angel or these angels. It says this in Luke 24, verse 5. And these women were frightened, and they bowed their faces to the ground. But at least they maintained consciousness. Mark chapter 16, verse 6. And what does the angel say to them? Do not be alarmed. Well, I can understand why they're alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The grave clothes are still there, but the body of Jesus is gone. And then I like what Luke tells us they said. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is no longer dead. He, my friends, is alive. And then we move from the empty tomb as evidence to the resurrection. The angels are evidence of the resurrection to the witnesses who meet the resurrected Jesus. They are evidence of the resurrection. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. These women are in shock. They can't even process this. They were bringing spices to anoint a dead body. They've just seen angels that are bright, flashing as bright like lightning itself in the tomb. They were there. They've been on their faces. And now the one who was dead is alive. They can barely absorb this. And they are told to go. Go and tell this good news to the disciples. And you can see they're like, uh, how do I explain this one? Uh, who's going to believe me? Uh, this is a heavy weight of responsibility. What am I going to do? Now, they are supposed to go tell the disciples to go to Galilee because Jesus will meet them there. So they somehow have to convince these guys to go all the way north. Now, this is not new, by the way. Jesus has told them that he would rendezvous with his disciples in Galilee. Remember Mark 16, verse 20, or 14, verse 28? After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. But these women are speechless. Women in that day did not have a, legal, a lot of legal standing. How could they convince people of what had happened? Now, let me just jump down here. They, I'm going to skip this next section a little bit and go right into a little further. What they need is help. They need help to actually believe that Jesus is resurrected. They need help to be able to tell others that Jesus is alive. They still haven't met Jesus. Wouldn't it be kind of Jesus to like actually show up and meet with them? Wouldn't it be kind of Jesus to actually show up and talk with them to bring their fear, perplexion, and confusion into boldness and joy? What do you think our great Jesus does at this point? He shows up. We read about this in Matthew. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear, yet they're still mixed with joy from seeing the angels. 
And they ran to tell his disciples. They're not too sure what they're going to say. And behold, what happens? Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet. And they worshipped him. There we go. Their fear turns to joy. They meet Jesus. It's not just the angels said Jesus has risen from the dead. They've met the Jesus who has risen from the dead. Luke 24 verse 10 tells us, they tell this news to the apostles. And what do the apostles think at this point? Do you remember? Do the apostles go, oh, that's great. Sure, we believe it. Can't be true. Can't be true. You said you've met him. Can't be true. These women are crazy. So what does Jesus do again that night? Do you remember? Does he show up again? He shows up, doesn't he? To convince them that the information that they heard from the women isn't just information, it's actually true. Now you have the apostles and the women who have not just heard that Jesus is alive, but they've met the risen Jesus. Later, there's two apostles, or two disciples, going on the road to Emmaus. They've also heard that Jesus is right, but they say, I can't believe it. It can't be true. What does Jesus do? Show up again to help them believe. A week later, now we have the apostles and the women who are gathered together, but there's one person who was absent the first time Jesus appeared to these apostles. Who was he? Remember his name? Thomas. I will not believe even though everyone else is telling me he rose, I still can't believe it. So what does Jesus do? Shows up again to help him with his faith. And then it continues. Jesus shows up again, we know from Corinthians. At, it appears to over 500 people at one time. Shows up and actually appears to Paul. And it continues. And we don't just find that there's the news that Jesus rose from the dead. But Jesus continues to show up and prove to people that he actually is alive from the dead. Now, how can we apply all this? Let me give you three angles that we can apply this. Number one, there is abundant evidence for the resurrection. We've seen, number one, the empty tomb. We've seen the witness of the angels. We've seen countless witnesses of hundreds of different people who met the risen Jesus. And not just one at a time but up to 500 at one time. The other thing that we can apply is this. Like the women at the empty tomb, God wants us to go and tell others that Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is alive today. He offers to forgive us, save us, and to make us into new people. We have to go and share the good news that Jesus is alive. But here is a very important point. While it is our job to tell the good news that Jesus rose from the dead, it is God's job to convince people that the news of Jesus' resurrection is true by touching and changing their life. Maybe you've wondered, just like the women, when they left Jesus' tomb, how could I ever convince someone that Jesus is alive? How could I ever convince them that him, he really rose from the dead? That's not your job. 
It's your job to tell people the good news. Jesus shows up into their lives, touches them and changes them, and convinces them that the good news of Jesus' resurrection is true. Folks, if we just share the good news, Jesus will take care of the rest in changing people's lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that your Son has risen from the dead. I thank you that your Son who rose from the dead has touched our lives. He has changed our lives. That we may not have put our fingers in Jesus' side like Thomas did, but we are convinced that Jesus, you are alive because you have touched us, changed us, and made us into new people. I thank you that it is only our job to tell people around us the good news of your resurrection. But Jesus, you take the hard job of convincing them that it is true that you are alive. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that the resurrection of your Son doesn't just mean that your Son rose, but it also means that we too will rise from the dead just like him. And that is what we celebrate. That is what we have joy in. That is why we worship you today because of our great, resurrecting, life-changing, amazing God. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.